Hello, Patrick Cox here. I'm no saint. But I am in Boston, home of the Celtics and that scary leprechaun-y figure that they have on their shirts. And that's supposed to celebrate Boston's Irish roots? So it's a Celtic-slash-Cambodian pod today. We have a guy who raps in Khmer. We have the number one ladies' detective agency in Scots. We have a man who says rude stuff in Irish, but no one understands what he's saying. And we have my dad, reminiscing about his years of studying Irish at school. He only remembers a phrase or two, such as... On Will Caragom, Dolomark Marche de Holly. What does that mean? It means, please, miss, may I leave the room? As a free man, I take pride in the word, Ich bin ein Violina. Why, as an American, do I have to push a button to speak English. I'm here with Patrick, and it's time to talk words. New words, old words, censoring everything. For those who don't know, the World Radio Program is the parent of the World in Words podcast. The big show, as I call it, is a co-production of the BBC World Service, Public Radio International, and WGBH in Boston. You can check out everything about the world at theworld.org. And you can read my blog, which is related to this podcast, at theworld.org slash language, also at patrickcox.wordpress.com. You can join the Facebook group, The World in Words, and post your comments there. Or you can tweet me. My handle is patrickcox, one word, P-A-T-R-I-C-O-X. So first off, I really got to get this off my chest. I never intended to do a St. Patrick's Day-related pod. But then on St. Patrick's Day, the big show went and did a really great interview on the Irish language, otherwise known as Gaelic. So what am I going to do? Just not play the interview in the pod? Heck no. I'm going to play an extended version of it. And you'll hear that a little later on. But given that we are on the subject of the Irish language, well, let me play your conversation I recorded with my dad. Yes, I'm afraid I'm reduced to interviewing my own flesh and blood. But in this case, it is relevant. My dad was born and raised in Ireland. Like so many Irishmen, he left, but not until he was in his 20s. So he is Irish schooled, indeed schooled in the Irish language. So, Dad, tell me the words that you know in Irish. I know how to count to um, to nine. In, do, three, cahar, cuig, she, shakt, hok, ne. That is one to nine. And then also I remember this little little request. On will cadagom, dollar mark, marche, de holly. What does that mean? It means, please, miss, may I leave the room? Oh, that's very good. <laughs> uh, so when did you start learning Irish? I started learning Irish when I was about uh, five, five and a half, taught by the nuns. And, and so when you were five and a half, that was, what, 1933, 34, something like mm. that. So Ireland was a new country at the time. It was. And learning the language was presumably seen as a, an act of patriotism. Learning the language was, was very important because um, being a new country... The idea was to have a language to go with it, but the language had always been there, and it's, it's just a pity that it, it got stamped out so much because it was one of the things which the penal laws and indeed any laws brought in by the English, they took a very poor view of people speaking Irish. But in point of fact, the revival of Irish never worked in Ireland nearly as well as it, it might have. And you've only got to compare Wales, for instance. Wales now has got a thriving language. Ireland doesn't really. It's become very much a sort of rather cerebral language, uh, one that is used by 
civil servants and just for the sake of it, romantic, everything else. It's not, it's not really a language which is used to any enormous extent, except in the parts of the country where they speak nothing but Irish, and there are still those little pockets, the Gaeltjocks. Not in Dublin, though. Although it, it, there are people in Dublin, and I mean, I got a, a letter the other day from somebody who can speak English perfectly well, but um, his cheque, he would be somebody, and his cheque was written in Irish and it was signed in Irish, and Bank of Ireland appeared in Irish. So that does exist. I'd like to see it properly back in place, but I won't now. So you don't think it's a waste of time, all of those years? And how, how many years was it? I was learning Irish from that age until I left school. But it was, generally speaking, it was, in those days, necessary if you wanted to get into, for instance, the civil service or jobs like that. You had to know your Irish. But if you'd, say, been taught French or, you know, more of a, a language that was more mainstream taught by many more people, would would that have been more useful to you? Or because of the situation of, of the language in the country, etc., was was it a good thing that you learned Irish? It was a good thing. I mean, I learned French as well, and also Latin. And the Irish was good, because if you're going to learn one language and you can manage to push another one along with it, it seems to me to be a more interesting thing to do. It's a different sort of series of words and all the rest of it against different constructions. And it was quite fun, but I wasn't um, scholarly enough really to appreciate that. I don't really feel now it did any harm. At the time, of course, uh, the opposite opinion would have been held by me. I would have said, no, no this is a terrible waste of time because you, you don't need this language. And the occasional Irish teacher would say, you'll, you'll regret it one day that you didn't work harder, you know. And I, I actually do. I really would like to know it much better than I do, and I don't know it at all. It's all gone. Now, I think these days in Ireland, you don't have to take quite as much Irish in school as you used to, but you still do have to take it to a certain degree. Every kid learns a little bit of Irish. Most adults don't really keep it up. There are, however, exceptions, especially people who were raised speaking Irish at home. And I think this is the case with writer and filmmaker Manahorn McGann. He's the guy who we spoke to on St. Patrick's Day. And the person asking the questions is the big show's Jeb Sharp. Manahorn McGann, you did a TV series a few years ago called No Beerla, where you traveled around Ireland speaking nothing but Irish. What happened? I did. Um, I, I got an enormous shock. I didn't know. I just thought it would be an interesting idea to see, you know, Irish is the national language of Ireland, and I decided, could you survive through it? And in my first few days in Dublin, I got basically shouted at and abused and kicked out of shops, which I just was not expecting. So that sort of opened a minefield of realizing that the language is such a potent issue in Ireland today. So you had this weird experience of being misunderstood or even not understood at all in your own country. But what issues were you trying to get at by doing that? I mean, I had been, you know, there are areas in the west coast of Ireland, uh, Gaeltacht areas, so Irish-speaking areas, and I had been living in those for a while, where all of business and all of transactions are done through Irish. And it just struck me, I wonder what would happen if I, you know, stepped foot outside these regions. Now, in theory, in the national census, um, 41% of the country will claim they speak Irish. So I thought, you know, at least, uh, you know, the majority of people I met would, uh, well, 40%, not quite the majority, would speak Irish. But when I went out, I realized they didn't. And not only that, but they were afraid and ashamed and didn't want to even be confronted by someone speaking Irish. So it seems there's a confusion. We want to claim we speak Irish. But for some reason, we have this guilt, we have this shame, which has a lot to do with, with our past relationship with the language, which means it doesn't really, really function at present. 
And some of your journey was quite comical, yes? There's a moment when you busk on the streets of Galway singing songs with absolutely filthy lyrics and no one understood the filth you were spewing. <laughs> exactly. I was just seeing how far I could push it. So when I went down to you know the beautiful town of Killarney and there I wanted to rob the bank and I wanted to like get local people on the street to help me rob the bank. And so I'd asked them in Irish. And again, you know, nobody could, would understand them. I was telling them that I would give them half of the proceeds, but they just sort of smiled wanly at me. In the same way as you said, when I was singing absolute filth on the streets of Galway, and if I had been singing those words in English, I would have immediately been arrested. You know, nobody understood. There were nice old ladies tapping along. So it was a lonely trip because, you know, after a while, after the first few days and weeks of just not being understood, of never having a conversation, of constantly being served the wrong food, the wrong clothes, the wrong haircut, um, using the native language of your country, it, it just gets confusing. So who is speaking Irish in Ireland today and, and why do they speak it? Well, you know, part of the reason that the older generation don't, don't speak it is because we were taught it like a, it was agenda-laden. It was a, a weapon against England. It was laden with sort of Catholic and tradition and, and, and it was so complex. Fortunately, the younger generation have none of those hang-ups. They are taking it on board as just any other language. And, and there's now a very cool and very trendy Irish language television station that is dubbing the likes of, of SpongeBob SquarePants and Scooby-Doo into Irish. So these young people are eager, are enthusiastic, and are, are creating a whole new version of the language for themselves, a sort of mixture of Irish and sort of Californian uh, English that they hear on American series. So that, that's, that seems to be the greatest hope of the younger generation. Now, you are currently performing a play in Dublin called... Called Broken Cree Heart Brishta. And again, it was a series when part of the television series, I looked at the Abbey Theatre, you know, which is our great national institution formed by William Butler Yeats to, to conserve and celebrate our culture and our language. And I realized that in the Abbey, for the last 10 years, there had been 74 plays in English and only four in, in Irish or in Gaelic, mainly because people don't want to go and see an Irish language play or there hasn't been any good ones. So I decided, could I write a play in, in Irish or in Gaelic that was understandable to English speakers. Uh, so it was more a linguistic challenge than anything else. Uh, and I put it on last year, and it did actually extremely well, and people were really enthusiastic. I'm sort of playing with the language and with the new forms it's taking on. Like, like among young people in Dublin, they now have this, like, oh my yeah, which is like the Irish version for oh my God, and, and like a cut ever for whatever. So just playing with, this, with the games that the, that the young people are using, sort of text speak in Irish. And what do you think the audiences are taking away? At some point, I'm playing both angles in the play. One, I am sort of the, the reactionary, anger, angry, bitter, hyper-Republican, English-hating Irish teacher of the old days, dressed in a kilt and in tweeds. And then with me on stage is this vibrant, young, energetic girl who is, who is using the language in a new way. So basically they're seeing, you know, they're, they're seeing reflected on stage that fear and the shame that we used to have in the language because we were taught it was, it was a language of poverty. And the English told us, you know, it was a, it was a barbarian tongue. Um, and then they're seeing how it has been taken by the new generation who are doing, you know, great new things with it. What future do you see for the Irish language? Well, if you had asked me that even a decade ago, I would have had a very bleak answer. Because we associated our language with our poverty, you know, it, it, we needed first to become rich, to get that self-pride before we could look at it in, in, in new terms. And because of that enormous economic boom we had 
until two years ago where we plummeted again. But we had, you know, we gained confidence in ourselves, in our traditions, in our cultures. We had the money to, to found an Irish language television station. So, you know, if that momentum is, is kept up, there's great hope. If we have new young pop uh, acts or rock acts singing in Irish, like Welsh has and like um, Scots Gaelic in Scotland has, then there's every hope, you know, that it can thrive, it can find a new, a new life for itself. Journalist and playwright Manahan McGann in Collinstown, Ireland. Thank you very much. Not at all. Thank you. Okay, that's quite enough Irish. Now to a language that is geographically close, but not linguistically, and that is Scots. There's an explanation of what Scots is coming up in the next segment, so I won't repeat things by giving you one here. And this next segment takes the form of a roundtable discussion on the BBC. I'm exerting the end of the program, where the focus is turning to Alexander McCall-Smith, you know, the guy who writes the number one ladies' detective agency books. The voices you'll hear, aside from McCall himself, are the novelist Jonathan Safran Foa and the economist Graciela Chichilinski. First, though, it's the moderator, the BBC's Andrew Marr. Um, we're going to come on to our final book, which you can certainly read, but you can only fully enjoy either if you're prepared to use the glossary or if you already speak Scots. Alexander McCall-Smith's number one ladies' detective agency series I think has been one of the, the biggest-selling book series in the last 20 years or so around the world. How many languages, Alexander? Uh, 45. 45 mm-hmm. different languages. It's been translated into enormously successful. And this is... Uh, a new story about Precious Ramotz with a detective at school and how she first became a detective. But, Alexander, for a year, it will only be available in Scots. Why? Yeah. Well, it, it is a, it's a story for children. I think it's important to, to yes. remember that it's a, it's a children's book. And so I'm not cruelly saying to the readers of the Number One Ladies Detective Agency that you can't read uh, the latest book unless you go off and, and learn Scots. So it's, uh, I think that's important. I don't think that I would produce the, the next full volume of the series in, uh, in Scots because that would be unkind to my uh, general readers. Uh, but I, th- I thought that I, I wanted to support uh, a very good a project that was being run in Scotland to uh, to translate children's books uh, into Scots and to get them into the schools so that the children could be reminded uh, of this this wonderful uh, heritage that that people in Scotland have of the Scots uh, language. So I wrote the the story uh, in English and then handed uh, handed on to uh, one of our uh, very finest contemporary uh, Scottish uh, writers. James, James Robertson, Robertson, yes. And James then translated it into, into Scots, and he's, he's done a lovely job of it. And it's illustrated by Ian McIntosh, who's uh, our finest illustrator. So uh, I think that they've, they've done something rather nice there. And we should explain to anyone who doesn't understand that Scots is completely different from Gaelic. Scots yeah, is allied to English, um, but it's got different intonations and rhythms and many, many different words. And Africa feels different when you read about Africa in Scots, doesn't it? Yes, it's, it's, a, very, it's a very expressive language. Uh, it's, it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful language for expressing emotion and, and, and physical things. Uh, so it, it really fitted very well with the African tone uh, of the prose. I'm going to try and read a little bit. What would you do if you found yourself standing face-to-face with Macaulay Stand as still as a stookie, mark your feet your friends and rin, creep awa quiet like, maybe you would just stick your in and hope that you're in a dream, which is what Obed did at first when he saw the fichtsome lion staring straight at him. Now, 
of course, Scots isn't... I mean, there are lots and lots of different Scots. <laughs> There's yes. Abedonian Scots and Glaswegian Scots and never the two ain't shall meet. Um, but the serious point behind this is that you think, as a language, it deserves respect and that if it started to trickle away or die out, perhaps as a result of television and radio and, and RP and American English, that would be a loss to the world. I think that's right. I think that uh, minority languages are, are a very important part of our cultural patrimony. And uh, I think it's very important that we, we, we try to protect them, not, not excessively, obviously, one has to be practical. Uh, but I think it would be a great shame if we all ended up uh, speaking the, the same language uh, which I suppose is happening to a very great extent with globalisation. English is being used all over the world, and, and sometimes a rather reduced form of English is becoming the predominant form of the language. So I think these smaller languages, such as Scots, which is recognised in the European uh, uh, Charter on uh, Regional Minority Languages as a language, uh, deserves mm. uh, a bit of protection. Jonathan? I wonder if you feel that we're on the cusp of a of a real change in terms of what you're speaking about um, as as books are, are moving away from print on paper into digital media. Mm. Um, you know, it has been it has been the paper book that's actually protected some of these smaller languages or at least, you know, markets outside of English. And now that everyone globally will have immediate access to English editions, it's going to be, I think, infinitely more difficult a more difficult argument to make to translate at all. Yes, well, it already is the case. And if you go, for example, to the Netherlands or to some of the Scandinavian countries where people are so good at English, you'll find that uh, publishers there say it's very difficult for them to bring out editions in their languages uh, because people just go and buy the the English language editions. So it's not just the tiny languages, as it were, or the, which we know are dying at a horrendous rate. It's some of the relatively speaking, quite large traditional languages are going to. I, I think it is. It, it's the sort of issue that the French are very mm. aware of. Mm. Graciela? Yes, you're right. Everything you say is correct. Sometimes it's difficult to separate the end from the beginning. And what I mean is the following. Uh, a language that you wouldn't expect is so prominent is really the second spoken language in, internationally in the world, which is Spanish. Mm. And Spanish is taking over the United States. So you have a cultural takeover by a language that and a group of nations that you wouldn't expect are, would have that role, but they do. I mention that because it's, it shows that there is really a lot of change happening, and it happens in both directions. But every language that goes encapsulates forms of human perception that have been captured in words, and once the word goes, possibly that way of thinking or looking goes too. I think that's right. Yes, I, I mean, obviously, uh, there's linguistic change and languages move forward and, and gain prominence and others fall by the wayside. And, and some, for example, can't adapt themselves to modern technology. That's one of the reasons why, why minority languages are in, in trouble at, at present. Mm. All, all that I would say is that in this particular case, we recognize that Scots is, is, is valuable and is worth, worth speaking. Alexander McCall-Smith, author of Precious and the Puggies, Precious Rambotswe's very first case, which is out soon and for the next year only available in Scots. And if you're wondering why Andrew Marr, the interviewer, sounded like such a natural reader of Scots, well, that's because he is Scottish. He was born and raised there, even if he doesn't sound like that these days. There's more Scots coverage, quite a lot of it actually, in The World in Words number 20, so check that out if you're interested.
And now to where else after a Scots language novel set in Botswana, where else but to Cambodia? And the report coming up is a profile of a guy who's still in his 20s, but he seems to have lived two or three completely different lives. And because he's lived in so many places, he has a very confused sense of home, his physical home and his linguistic home. His name, at least his pen name, is Boomer the Sharpshooter. He's Cambodian-American. He's a rapper, and he's a former gang member. He lived most of his life in the U.S. as a refugee. But in his late teens, he ran into trouble with the law, and he served time on a gun conviction. When he was released, he was deported to Cambodia, which is a country he's never lived in, despite his ethnicity. That was seven years ago. These days, Boomer's been learning to rap in uh, Khmer, the Cambodian language, and that's no easy feat since it's not the language he grew up speaking. Reporter Corey Takahashi takes up the story. I first met Boomer while traveling for a magazine assignment in Phnom Penh. He was angry, isolated, and living out the nightmare of his recent deportation. But even then, he was channeling his frustration into an unusual dream. He wanted to build a rap career in exile. Years later, he's actually done it. And on this song, called Phnom Penh City, he collaborates with a local, one of many Cambodians who he's taught how to rap. That's Boomer rapping mainly in Cambodia's national language, Khmer, or Khmer as Cambodians pronounce it. He practices with, among others, his new Cambodian wife. The game in Cambodia is like I'm in Khmer. I'm in so I'm in Cambodia. So if I'm going to have to eat, if I'm going to have to, you know, feed my family, I'm going to have to rap in Khmer. You know, so it's that's, that that was the transition. It, it was like for me to eat. You know. You know, every time I get stuck on my Khmer part, I go back to the English. I go back to English, and after that, I come right back to Khmer. Boomer, whose real name is Benreas Pin, isn't fluent, not by a long shot. He says it's still hard for him to understand Khmer on TV or newscasts. He was born 28 years ago in a refugee camp in Thailand. That was after Cambodia went into meltdown following the war in Vietnam and the reign of the Khmer Rouge. When his family landed in the U.S. as refugees, he was just six months old. He grew up in a Stockton, California neighborhood where the lingua franca was American street slang. Cambodian Americans would be like, ah, I know everything about Cam- I, you know, I know everything about the Khmer language, but we're not really fluent though, you know. But once you get into like literature, because you know rapping is literature, you know, you got to get deep words, you got to have vocabularies, you know. Once you get into vocabularies, we don't know nothing. So my wife helped me out, you know. So she, you know, she's been there for me. She's been helping me out writing my lyrics and stuff like that. Boomer has a Jekyll and Hyde relationship with being bilingual. Khmer language raps bring out his party persona, but English raps evoke his younger self and all the dark memories, including gangs, drug dealing, and a shootout in which no one was hurt, but which led to him getting deported. He was in his English state of mind when he recorded his first album in Phnom Penh, titled Straight Refugees, Volume 1. Yeah, straight from the gutter of the 4800 yards, you know what I'm saying? Straight G-block styles on mine, you feel me? Now he's on to his second album, which will feature other deportees from the U.S. Time has mellowed Boomer, slightly, but it's still hard for him to express certain emotions in English. But when he's trying to do happy English, you know, I can't do it. It's just, it's crazy, you know? know 
Now he's working as a music producer and as a counselor at an NGO for Cambodian street kids. It was founded by a breakdancer and fellow deportee named KK. The organization is called Tiny Tunes. What I'm doing now is just like I'm trying to save these kids. So if, if you know, that's, that's, that's me as an artist. You know, I, I try to find where I'm good at and try to find where I'm weak at. From my head to my shoe, don't mistake me for no fool. I done made my mistakes, but I done already paid my dues. I adapt to it, and then I, what you call it, I keep on moving forward. I keep on developing, you know, as an artist. I'm still developing to this day, you know. And a big part of that development is teaching kids from Phnom Penh slums and other Cambodians how to tell their own stories in the language of hip-hop. As for his story, well, Boomer is still thousands of miles away from home, but at least he's not dead or in jail. Deportation is hard, you know what I'm saying? The deportation messes up a lot of people's lives, you know, it messed up my life. But, it, you know, it messed me up for the better. You know, God sent me here for a reason. It messed him up for the better. And now, in a way... Boomer is trying to mess up young Cambodians for the better, too. He says he's influencing a younger generation in a way he couldn't have dreamed of back in America. For The World, I'm Corey Takahashi. Well, that's nearly it for today's pod. Just eating sideways to go. I'd love to come up with a Khmer expression but I couldn't find anything I could pronounce, what with that really weird-looking script. Any Khmer speakers listening? Got any unique expressions in Khmer that don't translate easily into English? Well, send them my way. Meantime, here's an Indonesian word, kekau, K-E-K-A-U. It's a noun meaning the sensation of waking up from a terrible nightmare. Brilliant! Makes you wonder why English doesn't have such a word. Maybe it did, and people just didn't use it. Well, dear listener, you may be experiencing your very own cacao within seconds because this week's episode is nearly done. I'll be back in about 10 days. I'm doing a bit of traveling for the pod, of course. In the meantime, post your comments and suggestions at the World in Words Facebook page or email me. That address is language at pri.org. Bye for now. Sometimes.